My name is Mark Beattie and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Archives. I'm going to highlight some of the articles from the November edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to highlight relates to reducing child health inequality. So health inequalities are defined as the gap in outcomes between different groups in society. In this issue, Hargreaves and colleagues investigate trends in health inequality among children and young people in England using data from health surveys over the last decade. Four outcomes were considered. Self and parent report of general health, presence of a long-standing illness, obesity and smoking. Changes in the absolute and relative risks of the four outcomes were considered using occupation of the head of household as a marker of socio-economic status. No indicator during the 10-year study showed a reduction in relative or absolute health inequality. And all four outcomes showed an increase in equality at some point during the period. These are interesting, disappointing and challenging data. And the real challenge of reducing child health inequality is discussed in detail by the authors and in an accompanying editorial by Nick Spencer. The editorial is appropriately titled Reducing Child Health Inequalities, What's the Problem? The second article I'd like to cover relates to the important problem of trying to wean tube feeding in children who are tube feed dependent. So many children with chronic illness require nasogastric or nasogeginal or gastrostomy tube feeding, often started in infancy with obvious benefits in terms of their nutrition, growth and development. The real issue is longer term what happens and this longer term switch from tube to oral feeding is not always straightforward. And many children, as we know, have a significant oral aversion syndrome. So in this issue, Wilkin and colleagues report their experience of a rapid home-based tube weaning programme in 39 children, median age 16 months. All were offered intensive support prior to and during the weaning period. Oral feeding was established in 90% with reasonable preservation of growth. The strategy used in this study was to rapidly reduce the amount of tube feeding in the hope that that would stimulate oral intake. Charlotte Wright in an accompanying editorial discusses the UK experience including the need to wean tube feeds in order to promote oral feeding emphasising the need for multidisciplinary services to be available to support families during this period and even more importantly the importance of when it Ever a child is started on tube feeds to agree what the exit strategy should be and how that should be implemented. The third article that I'd like to highlight relates to deaths from unintentional injury in Pakistan. Globally, 825,000 children die due to injury every year, with the death rate being very significantly higher in low-income countries. In this issue, Razak investigates the injury mortality burden in children under five years in Pakistan. That is 39.5 per 100,000 per year, so 9,800 deaths. That's 2.5% of all deaths. 
using data from the Pakistan Demographic and Health Survey from 2007. In children aged 1 to 4, so that's those who have survived their first birthday, injury was the third most common cause of death. That's 11%. After diarrheal illness, which counted for 18%, and pneumonia, which counted for 17%. The injuries were most commonly drowning, 22%, road traffic accidents, 12%, burns 11% and falls 10%. The injuries were at least twofold greater in rural compared to urban areas. The authors put this interesting data in context with other studies. So for example in Bangladesh the injury rate is significantly higher with deaths predominantly due to drowning. This high mortality burden of unintentional injury highlights the need to include injury prevention in global health strategies to achieve the Millennium Development Goal of reducing child mortality by two-thirds. The fourth article which I'd like to highlight relates to a very similar theme and discusses the opportunities for injury prevention. In a second paper from the same group, an in-home unintentional injury hazard assessment tool is used to quantify potential injury risks for young children in a low-income urban setting in Pakistan. The detail is in the paper. The authors identified a significant risk burden with multiple hazards present across all household areas and outside. Common risks identified included stoves within easy reach of the child, that's more than 50% of households, presence of open buckets of water within easy reach of the child, 48% of households, and pedestal fans accessible to the child, again 48% of households. Very few households had simple safety equipment, for example a fire extinguisher. So this is interesting and it follows on very well from their first publication. The authors highlight the opportunities for injury prevention through application of this tool as part of a wider strategy for injury prevention. The findings are of relevance to the global child health agenda to reduce morbidity and mortality in children. The fifth article I'd like to highlight from this month's edition of the journal relates to global child health training. Many UK paediatricians in training benefit from experience of child health in low resource settings. In this issue, Goenka and colleagues explore pathways to develop experience including preparation, timing and practicalities. The article provides essential guidance for interested trainees. In an accompanying editorial, Elizabeth Molnier discusses the importance of including global health in the training of health professionals. The data in the article is challenging. One billion of the world's 2.2 billion live in poverty, 640 million are without shelter, 400 million with no safe water, and 270 million with no access to health. The importance of global child health the benefit of training to the trainee 
and the future of global child health training in the UK are discussed in detail. The next article I'd like to highlight relates to whether or not all children should be immunised against influenza. In the UK, annual influenza vaccination is recommended for everyone at risk, including the elderly, healthcare workers and children over the age of six months in high-risk groups. This currently is with the inactivated vaccine made from influenza A and B viruses produced in hen's egg and given by intramuscular injection. This year, 2013, all children in the UK aged 2 and 3 will be offered the live attenuated influenza vaccine as part of an evolving strategy to offer this to all children aged 2 to 17. In this issue, Adam Finn discusses the background to, practicalities of and opportunities offered by this change, including the potential to improve the understanding of the epidemiology of influenza epidemics and thereby impact on them longer term. I'd like to finish by highlighting some content from fetal and neonatal this month and this relates to the challenges trainees face in delivering end-of-life care in the neonatal unit. This is a qualitative study from Toronto in which fellows underwent semi-structured interviews. The six themes identified which reflected the challenges trainees face included withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment based on poor outcome, explaining no resuscitation options to parents, clarifying do not resuscitate orders, empowering families with knowledge and shared decision-making, dealing with difficult cultures, and managing personal internal conflict. The authors suggest that these can serve as focal points for improving end-of-life care educational programmes for neonatal fellows in training. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I'd refer you to the journal website for the full papers. Thanks for listening.